Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, would like you to open it up with me to that passage that Meredith just read. It is in John chapter 15. Again, she said starting in verse 18. So if you're new with us this morning, uh, feel free to use one of the, the Bibles in the pew in front of you. Uh, you can even take that home with you today. If you don't have a Bible, you'll look in the table of contents and, and after a little bit, you'll find the book of John. It's at the beginning of the New Testament. Today is Palm Sunday. It's officially the beginning of what is called Holy Week, a week where Christians around the world gather to remember and to reflect on and to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a significant week. While we're going to look at those events this, this coming week on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday today, we are continuing our sermon series called The Last Night, which has been a, a, a kind of an insider's look at the last night Jesus spent with his disciples. I've told you this before, but 24 hours after this moment, Jesus knows that he's going to be crucified. He knows that the, live of the, the lives of these disciples, they're literally going to get turned upside down that they're not going to know what's happening, that they're going to be filled with all sorts of fears and questions. And so in these last hours with his disciples, he uses them to comfort them and to teach them what they're going to need to know for the days to come after his resurrection. Now, as you make your way to John 15, I want to get an idea of something here in the room. How many of you are lifelong residents of San Francisco, born and raised San Francisco people, okay? we got a good number of you. Awesome. Okay, hands down. How many of you grew up in another city, whether it's in the U.S. or around the world, but you've been in San Francisco for 10 years or more? Okay, 10 years or more. All right, uh, another great group. Okay, how many of you have been in San Francisco two years or less? Just raise your hand. Awesome, we got some good people. A lot of people in the Bay. Okay, good mix this morning. That's helpful. See, Rachel and I, we fit in that middle category. We have been in the Bay Area for right at about 12 years now. and But if it shouldn't be a shock to you. My accent should give it away. I'm not originally from San Francisco, right? I don't think anybody's shocked by that. Uh, for, for most of my life, before moving to the Bay Area, home was the Ozark Mountains of Northwest Arkansas. Well, well that's some cheers. I'm like, do you guys know anything about Fayetteville, Arkansas? No, it, it really is. I know most of you will never visit Northwest Arkansas, but it is a beautiful, beautiful city. It's home of the University of Arkansas, the Arkansas Razorbacks. Very important for those of you that don't know that. But it's also huh, the birthplace of, of companies that people in California love to hate. Walmart, Tyson Chicken, all those places are from my hometown. And so as, as uh, those companies grew, Northwest Arkansas has kind of grown with it. That, that for most of my life, that was home. But right after Rachel and I got married, literally within days of, of getting home from our honeymoon, we packed up all of our stuff, we put it in a Penske truck, and we took the long journey to the Bay Area where we have been for most of our married life. One thing that we've learned living in San Francisco is this, the longer you live in a new location, it changes you. You become a different person. Not in a bad way or a good way. Really, it's a neutral thing, but there are changes that happen. The longer you live in one place, you become different than where you came from. And so on one hand, that's a good thing. Do we still love Arkansas? Absolutely, we love Arkansas. We love to go back and visit. And in many ways, our perspective, having been here, has grown and it's helped us to better serve people in Arkansas when we're there to share that with them. But on the other hand, there's this reality that happens. The changes that have come about in our lives because we live in San Francisco have at times made us very odd to people who have only lived in Arkansas. Let me just give you some examples of this. 
When we go into someone's home in Arkansas, they think we are absolutely crazy that the first thing we do now is take off our shoes. They don't understand that. They look at us like we're crazy as if our socks are worse off for their floors than, than our shoes would be, but they don't understand that. We have never done that before we moved to California. Another one, people have no idea what we're talking about when we ask them, is there anywhere that we can find boba tea? No one. When we explain what that is, they think it's even worse. It's gross. They're like, so, so you're telling us like gummy bears shoot up into your mouth and we're like, no, that's that. It's not quite it. When we go to restaurants, they think we're crazy when, we're ask, when we ask, where are the green and the blue bins? They're like, we have trash. That's what we have. That's all we have. These changes that, that San Francisco has brought in by us have made us different than those who have only lived in Arkansas. Now, that's not to say we're better. If the same thing is true for those of you who have lived in San Francisco. If you move away and you come back, you'll be different than those who have only lived in San Francisco. Well, my point is this. Over and over again in the Bible, what you find is that it tells us in many different ways that when you become a Christian, when you have your life connected to Jesus Christ in a personal relationship, your primary residence is no longer this world. Instead, you are transferred into Jesus's eternal kingdom. And that changes you. There's changes that come about. It says this in Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 13, it talks, says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And the fact that we've been transferred from darkness to light, from death to life, that's an amazing reality. But here's the thing. The longer you're part of Jesus's kingdom, the more that you are changed by Jesus's kingdom, it's going to make you very odd to the world that does not know Jesus. It's a reality. It's what happens. And that's something we're going to see in this text. In this text, Jesus points the way to a conflict that's going to exist for every Christian. He then shares its cause, and then he gives us a challenge as we live in the midst of this conflict. And so let's look at the text. We're going to begin by looking at the conflict. What is this conflict that happens between Christians and those who don't know Christ? John 15, verse 18, at the very beginning, he says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You see, this is one of those passages where Jesus does not sugarcoat reality. He doesn't say, hey, follow me and, and everything's going to be great. People are going to love you. It doesn't matter what, what they thought about me. They're going to love you. No, in the most blunt terms possible, he says, the world hated me. Therefore, if you are connected to me, don't be surprised when it hates you as well. There's going to be a conflict. Now, when he talks about the world, he's not talking about everyone in the world. He's, he's talking about the world as it stands in opposition to him. The world that has seen his offer of grace and forgiveness, and yet they've rejected him. They've said, we do not need Jesus. Those who, the Bible says, are in that domain of darkness. It's as if they have spiritual blinders on them to keep them from knowing God. He says, there will be a conflict between you and that world. If you live the Christian life with any kind of consistency, it is inevitable that you will cause confusion and in some cases, all-out hostility among your relationships with those who do not have that same relationship with Jesus. This is something that should not have been new to the disciples of Jesus. 
as they walked with him, uh, many oftentimes these crowds would gather around Jesus because they wanted something from him. They wanted him to heal them or he, they wanted food from him. They, they wanted something from Jesus. And so over and over again, Jesus would turn to the crowds and he'd say, you have to understand being part of my kingdom, it, it does not require anything of you, right? And, and, and the fact that you can't earn my love and forgiveness, you can't do any of those things. I'm going to the cross for you. You can't earn those things. But following me does not mean your life is going to be easy. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. In John chapter, or Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says this, And Jesus said to all, he looks at all of us and he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Not just once. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus wasn't talking in in hyperbole here. Many of the people that would follow him were literally going to have to take up their own cross all the way to death. And he knows that. And that's why he knows that one of the most crucial teachings that one of his followers can ever get is this concept of suffering and persecution. He knows that we need to be ready for it. I've often compared suffering or persecution to the waves of of this ocean as they come into the shore. Now, if you're out swimming in the ocean and you see a wave coming, you can do a number of things, right? You can dive under it. You can swim with it. If you're on a surfboard, you can ride it. You can do a number of things. But if you're not looking at that wave, you don't expect it, what's going to happen? You're going to get hit. You can get knocked over. You're going to begin spinning. And oftentimes that's what we see happen in the Christian life. For individuals that hear this false gospel message that if you just know Jesus, your life's going to be healthy and you're going to be wealthy and you're going to have all these great things happen to you, all of a sudden the wave of suffering hits, the wave of persecution, the wave of, of people slandering you or calling you a bigot or anything else, that hits you, what do you do? You run out of sorts. You get knocked over. And the result oftentimes is that we as Christians either become completely insular about our faith, we hide it, or we just kind of go along with the world and say, well, if that's the cost, then forget following Jesus. He, Jesus wants them to be prepared for the suffering that is going to come into their lives. And that was important because every single one of these 11 individuals in the room that Jesus was talking to was going on. It was almost all of them were going to die a martyr's death. After his death and resurrection, they were going to be ridiculed for following Jesus. They were going to be imprisoned. They were going to be beaten. Some of them were going to be burned alive. Some of them were going to be crucified just as their Savior had been crucified. Some of them were going to be stoned. These 11 men would understand the suffering and persecution that comes with bearing Jesus' name. And so he warns them. But friends, I want you to understand this is not just a warning to them. He's saying this to each one of you in this room who has the light of Christ in you. It's why in in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says all. That's without qualification. It's not just those Christians over on that side of the world. It's not just those Christians in that time period. He says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Following Jesus has a cost. 
And that cost is oftentimes ridicule. It's, it's, it's oftentimes being seen as ignorant. It's being seen as, 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 as back in the day, as, as uneducated, as all these different things. And sometimes it's actually pain and death. I gave you a recent statistic that over 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith in the last year. That is in 2019. That's not way back then. 90,000 brothers and sisters in our family have been killed for their faith over the last year. This is still a reality today. By God's grace, we don't experience that here in the city of San Francisco. But I've talked to many of you. I know the very real fear you have of, of making public your connection to Jesus. You're afraid it's going to cost you a promotion. You're afraid it may cost you a job. You're afraid it's going to cost you conversations with friends. Just to be able to hang out with people without it being awkward. There's a cost to following Jesus. Because Jesus cares for us, he doesn't gloss over this hard reality. He says, if you are living out your faith, you need to expect conflict. I don't know how it's happened, but somehow, some way, Christians have been fed that false lie that if we give our lives to Christ, everything's going to be good. In order for you to believe that lie, you have to get rid of this entire book. You have to get rid of everything that Jesus says. You have to ignore the countless cries of our brothers and sisters around the world. He says there will be conflict. But the question becomes why? Why is there this conflict? And so that's why I want us to look at the cause. Jesus tells us very specifically what the cause of our conflict as his disciples is going to be. Look at verse 19. He says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of what? My name. Because they do not know him who sent me. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship and had somebody break up with you. And they say this, you know, really, it's not you, it's, it's, it's me. Well, in essence, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying this conflict that you're going to experience in your life, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about me and what, what I've done. It's about what I've taught. He says, if you are one of my servants, then, then in the same way that the world rejected me, it's going to reject you. There's going to be that conflict. If you look at why the world hated Jesus, it wasn't because of his miracles. They didn't hate Jesus because they, he was feeding them miraculously. They didn't hate Jesus because he was healing people. They weren't hating Jesus because he was ministering to people. None of those works are why people hated and rejected Jesus. Why did they reject Jesus? It's because of what he said. It's his claims. Jesus said, I am God. He came and he taught as one who had authority. He came as one from outside of this world and said, I am in authority over this world, including each one of us in this room. And that makes us uncomfortable, does it not? Now, I realize this may be a, a pretty poor illustration, but I'm going to try it nonetheless. How many of you have seen the movie E.T.? Many of you are, actually, put your hands down. How many of you have not seen the movie E.T.? Raise your hands. All right, there's going to be an opportunity to repent at the end of the service, so we'll, we'll have that for you. It's an old movie, I realize, at this point, but it's, it's pretty simple. Let's go ahead and get the picture of E.T. on the screen. 
For those of you who have never seen E.T., E.T. is this cute little guy that happens to get stranded on earth. I'm gonna try to make this very short, but he meets a friend named Elliot. He loves Reese's Pieces and they they pretty much are having a good time. There's nothing wrong with E.T. Why would anybody hate E.T.? He's cute. He doesn't wanna harm anybody. He just wants to go where? He wants to go home. Why would anybody hate E.T.? Well, as the story moves on, everything's going well until all of a sudden Elliot's mom walks in and she sees E.T. And she goes completely bonkers, right? She can't handle this. And eventually the government gets involved. And, and from this feel-good story, it turns into this government where they, they literally put their house under orders and they're trying to dissect E.T. All of a sudden, you've got a ton of E.T. haters all around in the movie. They're saying, how can we get rid of E.T.? Now, why would people hate E.T.? He's cute, doesn't want to harm anybody, hasn't done anything wrong. Why do they hate him? Because he's an alien. When E.T. came, he wrecked people's sense of security and comfort. He flip-flopped their sense of reality. All of a sudden, they thought all these things that we thought were true are no longer true, and that made them uncomfortable. So what did they do? Get rid of E.T. Well, in a very poor example, I will admit, But at the end of the day, you think about Jesus. He came into the world as one over and above the world, as one who had authority. And did his claims that he is in authority, that he is different, did it not wreck people's sense of security and comfort? Did he not come in such a way that people had to come to grips with everything I thought was true isn't true. God became man. That was not even on their radar. That they were sinners in need of a savior that they couldn't earn their salvation, that they couldn't work for their salvation. All of these things were completely new. They didn't want an authority. And if we're honest in this room, I think we can all agree, we don't like authority. We don't want somebody to tell us, this is how you were designed to live. This is what's true and what's not true. This is what's right and what's wrong. We don't want that authority. And so we do the same thing with Jesus. We reject him. We say, how quickly can we get him out of our lives? And that's what the world has done to Jesus. The, world be- the word became flesh, but what does John say? That it was rejected. He was rejected by his own. Why? Because of his claims, who he is and what he said about us. We don't want to believe that we are sinners in need of a savior. And so we do the same thing with Jesus that the world did with Jesus when he first came. We reject him. So Jesus is saying here, if you align yourself with me, if you are one of my disciples and you say, you know what, Jesus is actually truth. Jesus declares what is right and wrong. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father through him. He says, if you align yourself with me and my teachings and my claims, the world is going to reject you just as it rejected me. Another thing that stood out to me is verse 19. Think about this in your own life. He says this, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. See, the problem with Christians is this. The moment you give your life to Christ, you no longer belong to the world. Have you ever thought about that? You no longer belong to it. And here's what I mean by that. That the world and all the things in this world are no longer your number one priority. The moment you give your life to Christ, Jesus and his kingdom become your number one priority. And that creates conflict because before Christ, you had all sorts of other priorities. 
Jesus dives into this in, in, his, in, in, in many places in the Bible. He says this, you can, if you're following me, means, following me means that you no longer put your family first. Following me means that you no longer put your career or the company first. Following me means that you no longer put your friends first. You no longer put your race first. You no longer put your country first. You no longer put your retirement first. You no longer put your political party first. Following Jesus means that he and his kingdom become the treasure of our hearts. He says, you no longer belong to the world. And this is going to cause conflict. I know that from talking with many of you in this room that that has been the case in your life. Your boss does not understand why you can't be just a little bit unethical. Your boyfriend does not understand why you will not have sex with him. Your family does not understand how you could turn your back on your religious culture of your upbringing. Your friends don't understand why you won't out and go out and get drunk with them. Your fellow Democrats do not understand how you could speak up against abortion. Your fellow Republicans do not understand why you won't shut up about social justice issues. All of these people in the world will look at you and they will say, you're not trustworthy. Why? Because you're not fully one of us. We are not your priority. Jesus says, you no longer belong to the world. Why? I love it. He says this, because I chose you out of the world. I chose you out of the world. And I think that statement's really important because that should shape every interaction we have with those that don't know Jesus. That those that haven't received his grace, they haven't experienced his grace. This should shape it. He says, I chose you. Which means this, when we go back into the world, we don't go back into the world as people that are better than anyone else. We don't go back into the world with an arrogant attitude, with a self-righteous attitude. Why? Because nothing of our salvation was from us. God chose us before the beginning of the world. God did everything for us to be saved. We're going to look at that on Good Friday and Easter. He died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins. He took the punishment for sin that we deserved. We didn't do that. Were we resurrected from the dead? No. He was resurrected from the dead, defeating our greatest enemies of sin and death. We did nothing other than to receive him, to put our trust in him. He says, I chose you, and that should change how we look at the world. It leads to what Jesus says is the challenge for each one of us in this world. In this world where we're going to experience conflict because of our connection to Jesus. And let me just say this. If you are being, if your conflict with the world is because of your own arrogance or the way that you're treating people or unkindness or because you're being a troll on the internet, let me just say this. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about that conflict. That is sin. We need to repent of those things. He's saying when conflict comes because of me, because you're standing for what I have said is true, because you're standing for me, that's when he says you're blessed. But in the midst of this conflict, how are we to respond? Are we supposed to stand up and fight? Are we supposed to, to just kind of give way and just go along with the world? What are we supposed to do? Well, Jesus issues this challenge in verse 26, if you'd look down with me. 
says, but when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. We talked about the Holy Spirit last week. That's who he's talking about. Who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You see, the challenge that Jesus issues his disciples as he's preparing them for this world where they're going to have tribulation, they're going to have conflict, they're going to die for their love for Jesus. He says, in the midst of that conflict world, I want you to go out and bear witness about me. I want you to go out and in your life, I want you to shine the light of Christ for people to see. I want you to go out and with your words, I want you to speak and give evidence of your relationship with me and what I have done in your life. We are called to go out and give, testify about Jesus. If you think about that, that should be natural. When Rachel and I go back to Arkansas, I can't tell you how many times we encourage people, you have to come visit us. You have to come visit us in San Francisco. These are our favorite restaurants. These are the amazingly beautiful things you can see. These are the things you can do. We encourage them. We implore them. Come back with us. How much more should we as God's people go out into the world and tell them, testify, bear witness to the life that we have in Jesus Christ? The life of abiding with Jesus. The life of joy, the life of peace, the life of contentment, the life free of fear of death. Jesus says, no matter how much conflict may come your way, your role is to help people take one step closer to me. To both with your actions and your words, lead people to see that I have done everything needed for their salvation. You are to give testimony. This is true of you high school and junior high students in your schools. I realize that, that being a Christian in the junior high, the middle school, the high schools of San Francisco is not easy. I realize it means you have to say no to a lot of things your friends are doing. You may be ridiculed. You may be saw, seen as, as a goody tissues. I don't know what it is, but I know it's not easy. I'm telling you, it will be worth it, Jesus says in this passage. This is a, a call to you who are parents and your kids are in sports. What is your, how do you reflect Christ to those other parents and your kids' sports teams? It's a call to you at work with your coworkers. It's a call to you in your neighborhoods. It's a call to you in your circle of friends, in your family. Our role is to go out and speak, to give evidence of Jesus and what he has done in our lives. Now, I realize that that won't come naturally. And that's why Jesus says what he does. He says, the helper. The Holy Spirit that I've given to you, he is going to bear witness. You also now go and bear witness. In other words, as you go out, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. The Holy Spirit will empower your words. The Holy Spirit is not only at work in you, he's at work all around you, bearing witness about who Jesus is and what he's done. Will some reject you? Yes. But you can't save anyone, friends. Only he can do that. Your call is to simply to bear witness witness over and over again to bear witness one of the most important moments in my life came when i was a teenager and i realized that this call to bear witness was not just for some super disciples like peter and paul and james and john and all these disciples i realized that this was my call that god could take me as weak as i am 
and use me to declare who he is, not just in Arkansas, but among the nations. You say, Ryan, I'm not mature enough. I've only been a Christian for a little bit. Ryan, I'm still, my life's still messy. I don't, I don't know enough. I'm not educated enough. Listen to these words in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. He says, For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You are weak. There is no reason a kid from Arkansas should be standing in one of the most influential cities of the world proclaiming the gospel. But in our weakness, what happens? He is strong. And his gospel goes out. And people hear the good news of what Jesus has done for them. And yes, some reject. But some do what? They turn and they put their trust in Jesus. He says, the Holy Spirit is bearing witness all around you. Friends, I have to ask you this question. Are you bearing witness with your life? Does your life look anything different than the world around you? Matthew 5.14 says this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Listen to that. It cannot be hidden. If Jesus is living within you, his light will shine. Unless you're totally trying to keep it hidden. Friends, do people see a difference in you? Have you given testimony with your words to the people that matter most in your life, the people that God has put in your circle of influence. This is a very important week. And I just wonder, could it be that God has already placed one person in your life that he's already working in, that he's called you to bear witness to? I wanna challenge you this week. Easter Sunday is next week. Who is one person that you have invited? to our Easter service so that they can hear the good news of what Jesus has done for them. Who's one person? Who's your one? I'm not asking for five. Here's the thing. I'm not even asking for you to take them from step A to step all Z, right? Who's one person that you can help take one step closer to Jesus this week? Who's one person that you can share about the change that Jesus has brought in your own life? You can share what God's been teaching you lately can share how to embrace suffering and endure things that they can't endure on their own. Who's your one? If there's no sense of conflict in your life at all, I think you've got to ask some hard questions this morning. If there's no sense of this, this, this confusion among the people around you, you have to ask the hard questions. But if you do sense this conflict, I want to encourage you with the last words of Jesus in this chapter. In chapter 16, verse 33, he says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Again, he doesn't sugarcoat reality. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That is incredibly good news this morning. What he's saying is this, no matter how many battles you may face in this life, the ultimate victory has already been won. Because of his death and resurrection, that victory is in the bag. But there's going to be a day 
where you stand before him in all of his glory. And I'm just telling you this morning, I can promise you on that day that you see him face to face, you will never regret one sacrifice you made in this life. You will never regret one ounce of pain that you endured for his name in this life. You will never regret one word of testimony that you bore for his sake in this life. He has overcome and he says this, in me you can have peace. Though conflict may wage around you, if you are in me, if you're abiding in me, you can have peace because I have overcome. This morning, I pray that we be a church who doesn't go from this place and live arrogant lives, self-righteous lives, anything like that, but that we would go into the world that has not yet known the love and mercy and grace of Jesus, and that this week we would bear witness, that with our lives and our testimonies, we would tell people about who Jesus is and what he's done. Let's, if you would, please join me together in prayer.